From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, December 17th. I'm Marco Werman. The horrific school shooting in Connecticut has reignited the debate over guns and violence in America. But when comparing the U.S. to other nations, this public health expert says it's guns, not violence, that sets us apart. Our kids are not more violent than kids in other countries. Our kids are not more aggressive than kids in other countries. We have about the same depression rates as other countries. What is different is this guns. We'll also hear how gun regulation works or doesn't in Israel and Mexico. That's coming up on The World. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The first funerals were held today in Newtown, Connecticut. Two of the youngest victims of Friday's horrific school shooting, both six-year-old boys were laid to rest. Meanwhile, police continue to comb through the crime scene at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown. Connecticut State Police Lieutenant Paul Vance said today that the investigation will be thorough and long. We know as investigators that the people of Connecticut, the people of this town of Newtown, want to know what happened. We're going to do that. We're going to provide them any information and all information. We'll paint a crystal clear picture as much as we possibly can. Vance also told reporters that some of the details about what happened remain too difficult to discuss. What many around the globe are discussing following Friday's shooting in Newtown is America's gun culture. David Hemingway is at the Harvard School of Public Health. He's done a lot of research about gun ownership and violence around the globe and on how the U.S. compares with other industrialized nations. Well, we have more guns per capita, at least private guns, than any other developed country. And the key thing is that so many of these guns are handguns, and in the, some of them are assault guns, assault rifles. We have by far the weakest gun control laws of any developed country. And I would argue, not surprisingly, we have more gun crime and more gun violence and more gun death than anybody else by far. And the numbers are staggering. A child in the United States aged 5 to 14, they're 13 times more likely to be murdered with a gun. And overall, uh, since the non-gun homicide rate is about the same, uh, it's three and a half times more likely that one of our children will die in a homicide. Suicide, uh, these are 5 to 14-year-olds where it's hard to blame the victim. Uh, We are eight times more likely uh, for these kids to find a gun and kill themselves. Our overall non-gun suicide rate is exactly the same as the rest of the world. We're just out of control here. Those are are shocking numbers. Um, I I teach at a school of public health with lots of international students, and they just can't understand either our laws or why we allow uh, all these deaths. Right. You you, oppo- you approach this issue from a public health angle. I mean, make your case for that. And why do you see this as a public health issue? Yeah. I mean, I think the public health view just makes everything broader. And it's, and it's a systems approach that says, let's make it so instead of trying to focus just on the individual, here's a bad person, let's do something with them. It says, let's 
focus more on the agent and also on the environment and try to figure out how even if people sometimes behave badly, uh, bad things won't happen. You should realize that in the United States, uh, our kids are not more violent than kids in other countries. Our kids are not more aggressive than kids in other countries. Our kids don't play lots of more video uh, aggression games than kids in other countries. We have about the same violence rates as other countries, the same depression rates as other countries. What is different is this guns. You know, I've been seeing this chart that's making the rounds on social media that shows, you know, the differences between gun ownership uh, in various countries Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one gun per hundred, hundred, for example, in Japan and very few murders. Is it is it as clear as that? If there are stricter gun laws, then there are going to be fewer murders. Yeah, I I mean, and and fewer guns. Uh, We've done lots of studies within the United States and trying to look at you know, urban states versus urban states and rich states versus rich states, trying to control for all the types of variables you'd like to control for. There's no question that in states where there are more guns, there are lots more people dying from homicide, suicide, and unintentional gun death. Is there anything particular to U.S. attitudes about gun and gun regulation that makes this country so different from other parts of the Um, world? I think it's more a political system. If you do surveys. If you ask about gun control, people think gun control is terrible. They're going to take away your guns. But if you ask about lots and lots of specific policies, um, should we have universal background checks for guns, which we don't have? Almost everybody's for that. Even gun owners are for that. Even NRA members are for that. Should we have one gun per month laws, which may uh, reduce gun running from high gun to low gun states? And most people are for these. Uh, The majority are for almost all the reasonable policies, and there's lots and lots of them, but we have none of them. And I think it has to do with the power of single-issue lobbies in the United States, not really with uh, individual people's preferences. David Hemingway with the Harvard School of Public Health. Thank you very much. Thank you. Reaction from around the world echoes what David Hemingway says. Even in Israel, where the U.S. is highly respected in many ways, people are shocked by what happened in Newtown. And by the way, guns are so available in our country. Reporter Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem says the Israeli news media have been devoting lots of space to the Connecticut shooting. There were radio interviews with Newtown's rabbi, who comforted the family of the youngest victim of the shooting, who was Jewish. There's a lot of sympathy here with this story because Israelis feel as if they've been through the same thing with years of Palestinian bus bombings and attacks. The Israeli prime minister sent a letter to President Obama uh, comparing the shooting to terror attacks on Israeli civilians, uh, basically saying Israel knows your pain. The two things are different, but for Israelis, I mean, what seems to be the main focus and thoughts about guns in America today? There has been a lot of criticism in the Israeli press um, the last couple of days about American gun control laws. Anyone who's been to Israel knows that you see a lot of guns here all the time. They're mostly carried by 18-year-old soldiers in the army, but uh, the soldiers have to keep the guns on them at all times. There are very strict rules about that. And in general, gun owners in Israel are uh, restricted. They're only allowed to own one pistol. They have to go through exhaustive mental and physical tests before they can get a weapon. Any Israeli who owns a gun has to have been a captain in the army or a former lieutenant colonel in the army. And the one big exception are Israelis who live in the West Bank, in West Bank settlements, or Israelis who work there. They are allowed to carry guns. And yet, when when I was in Israel, I recall seeing gun shops everywhere. I mean, there is a gun culture. I remember seeing a guy come into a coffee shop, put down his cell phone on the table, then his sidearm. I mean, capture for us 
the difference in attitudes towards guns uh, in Israel and the U.S.? I think people here in Israel are are immune to that. I think they uh, recognize that they live in a dangerous neighborhood. You know, I, I hop on a bus and I'm sitting next to a soldier and he falls asleep and his M16 kind of sticks into my into my side. It, it's something that is so prevalent that you get used to it. There is little criticism about the, the pervasity of, of guns here. I think because you don't see mass shootings, Israeli on Israeli shootings, uh, like you might see American on American shootings like we've seen. But but there's a culture of violence and a culture of guns in Israel. I don't understand the difference. I think the difference, first of all, is that uh, Israelis see the attacks that happen on them as attacks that are attributed to political reasons. When there are shootings on Israelis, it's because uh, there's an Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the shooters are uh, Palestinian. Um, that's a, a sweeping generalization, but the, there's a feeling that, especially with this shooting, it was senseless w- without any reason. You know, I think about all, all the tears that have been shed here in Connecticut and in households across the U.S., but in Israel, as you pointed out, Daniel, gun violence, not to mention bomb violence, uh, has shattered people's lives and those of their children. How do Israelis heal after national traumas? Israeli first responders are very quick. Within minutes, they come. They take the injured away to hospitals. They clear away the carnage and uh, all of the destruction. So within an hour or two, a road is reopened for traffic. You know, if you're at the same spot just a few hours after, you won't even know that anything had happened there. They, They have to move on as quickly as possible. They can't let this last tragedy uh, affect them because there will be another one and another one. Daniel Estrin, we'll leave it there. Thank you. You're welcome. Our neighbor to the south, Mexico, has an interesting parallel with the U.S. when it comes to guns. Its constitution, like ours, guarantees the right to bear arms. But unlike the U.S., Mexico has laws that make it very hard to legally obtain a firearm. Still, if you look at the long and violent drug war there, it would seem that such laws don't make Mexicans any safer. Alberto Islas is a security expert based in Mexico City. Break it down for us, Alberto. What are the laws regarding gun ownership in Mexico? Gun ownership in Mexico is very difficult. You need to have a permit from the Mexican army, and everybody is is vetted. But on the black market, it's very easy to acquire a gun in Mexico. Are there gun stores in Mexico? No, they're not gun stores. All of them are sold and imported by the Mexican army. So even a local police force has to buy the arms. They cannot buy them directly. They have to go through the Mexican army. Right. So it sounds like the gun laws are pretty tough there. But if you ask most Mexicans, do you feel safe in this country? What are they going to tell you? People will probably not feel very safe. Just to give you a price, to acquire a gun in the black market here in Mexico, it would cost somewhere around 400 to $600. All right. So if Mexicans don't feel safe, where does the whole system fall apart then? Uh, there's a lot of arms trafficking here in Mexico. The Mexican borders are very porous. I mean, Mexico has a very wide and big border with Guatemala, parts of Central America, and a lot of illegal guns come through there, but also from the north. As you may know, the state of Texas has one of the biggest number of gun shops in the world, and are they're not very reviewed very clearly. Now, we hear periodically about the flow of guns from the United States into Mexico. Just how big a problem is it? No, it's a very big uh, problem, but the biggest problem is that it hasn't been identified. The 
government of the U.S. and the Mexican authorities have been trying to work in order to dismantle arms shipments from the U.S. into Mexico. But this has been very cumbersome because there's no clear process as to how to do and carry out these investigations. Last year, the United States had this investigation of ATF agents smuggling guns into Mexico because they didn't trust the Mexican counterparts. Mexicans also do not trust the Americans doing investigations here in Mexico. So this creates a lot of distrust between authorities that should be cooperating and are distrustful of each other. Tell me what's been happening because of strict gun laws and because of the illegal guns that are coming into the drug cartels. Has this all generated either a pro-gun lobby or an anti-gun lobby in Mexico? No, in Mexico, basically, it's an anti-gun lobby. People here are against guns. And one of the big misconceptions that we have here in Mexico is that we blame the U.S. for the amount of guns that the U.S. has and the lack of laws regulating the gun ownership in the United States. But at the end of the day, this is a Mexican problem because our borders are not secure. We do not go after arms cartels that are introducing illegal weapons into Mexico. We cannot keep on blaming the U.S. for uh, the availability of guns and blaming that for the death of Mexicans here. The number of murders here in Mexico are due to the lack of investigations and the impunity that we have. So I'm just curious to know, Alberto, when we have uh, these horrific events like the one in Connecticut on Friday, do Mexicans kind of sadden by what happens, but then also turn to kind of an anger reminded of their own gun problems there in Mexico? It's a sweet and sour flavor that, that is left here. It's a contradictory. I mean, everybody is shocked by these events. I mean, we had 27 innocent people that didn't didn't have anything to do with violence. They hadn't aggravated anybody. And on the other side, this is something that we see every day here in Mexico. Last year, just to give you an example, over 38 people died every day in Mexico just because of guns and just because of the violence that we have in this country because of drugs. Security expert Alberto Isla speaking with us from Mexico City. Much obliged. Thank you. Have a good day. The world's Monica Campbell has a new blog post on how U.S. guns wind up at crime scenes in Mexico. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at medtronicfoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For some immigrants, there's no quicker way to becoming a U.S. citizen than joining the Army. In exchange for enlisting, immigrants with certain language skills or medical training get their citizenship by the end of basic training. It started as a pilot program, which ran for a year in 2009. Now the program is up and running again. And as Nina Porazuki reports from New York, immigrants from one particular country have been especially eager to participate. On a recent morning, I met Yoon Young Kim at a busy coffee shop in New York's Koreatown. No fancy Korean-themed black sesame latte for Kim. He likes his coffee simple. Sugar? Nothing. Black. Just black? Oh, good lord. That's tough, man. You are going into the army. In fact, Kim, a South Korean national, was sworn into the U.S. Army just a few weeks ago. He's set to leave for basic training in April, and by the end of summer, he's scheduled to raise his hand again to swear another oath, this time as a U.S. citizen. When Kim came to the U.S. eight years ago to study nursing, 
he never thought he'd be enlisting in the U.S. military, and certainly not at age 32. He worries about his English and keeping up physically with a bunch of 20-year-olds at boot camp. Mentally, probably I'm better than them, but for physically, probably I'm weak. So right now, these days, I'm trying to you know, just really work out by myself for the push-up and sit-up and running style, and I'm just trying to prepare for that. Before enlisting, Kim was getting frustrated, trying to find a job in nursing, and his visa was running out. That's why he leapt at a chance at fast-track citizenship with the U.S. Army. Now, immigrants fighting for the U.S. military is nothing new. Something that a lot of Americans don't realize, but substantial numbers of people who have served in the military during wartime in past wars have been immigrants. That's retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Margaret Stock. Stock also happens to be an immigration attorney. While immigrants have fought in wars since 1775, things changed after 9-11, she says. A new federal rule required legal immigrants to have a green card to enlist. Suddenly, the Army was forced to turn away thousands of qualified applicants. I would get calls from people in the military. Since I was in the military, they'd call me and say, hey, how come... You know, Tanya so-and-so just walked into the recruiter's office and she's got a U.S. high school diploma and she speaks three languages and, you know, she's really well qualified to be in the military. She's got great test scores, but I'm not allowed to let her in because she doesn't have a green card. And they call me trying to get me to get her a green card. And then an idea came to Stock. What if the military took advantage of a legal loophole? Stock discovered the loophole in a statute passed by Congress. They put an exception in the statute that said that a person who didn't meet the normal criteria for enlistment could voluntarily enlist if the person's enlistment was vital to the national interest. That loophole became the military accessions, vital to the national interest, or MAVNI program. The U.S. military today has missions all over the world, and recruiting men and women who speak the local language and know the local culture is vital. Yoon Young Kim hopes his Korean language skills might be useful in monitoring North Korea. So if they use me, it'd be great. Turns out, many other Koreans are as ready as Kim. While there are 44 desired languages on the Mavni recruitment list, from Russian and Hindi to smaller Filipino dialects like Moro, Korean speakers have signed up in droves. The force behind this swell of enthusiasm, James Huang. If you have a question about the MAVNI program, he's the person to contact. I got almost more than like 100 emails per day. Huang is a civilian. He always wanted to serve in the Army, but when he visited a recruiter years ago without a green card, he was turned away. Then he heard about MAVNI and made it his mission to spread the word about the program to other Koreans. He hosts info sessions in his home and fields questions on Facebook. He is even responsible for two Mavni marriages. Why does he do it? There were many people before this program who were on a non-immigrant visa for many years, and they didn't really have very much hope for becoming a permanent resident because of the backlog of the U.S. immigration system. Huang's effort has led to an overwhelming number of Koreans applying, says Margaret Stock. The Korean community got so enthusiastic and mobilized about the program that if we had let the program run first come, first serve without regard to the specific languages that we were recruiting, 
we probably would have ended up with 800 Korean language speakers and nobody from any other language groups. So the army put a quota on Korean speakers. Stock is happy that Mavni is so popular, but she says the program really shouldn't exist. What Mavni really points out is a broken immigration system. If our nation had comprehensive immigration reform, if we had a legal immigration system that worked, we wouldn't need a program like Mavni. We could just draw on the population of people living legally in the United States with green cards. At the cafe in Koreatown, Yoon Young Kim sips his black coffee and smiles at his good fortune. He was one of the last Korean citizens to enlist before the Korean language quota was met last month. Of course, not everyone understood his decision to serve. When he told his parents in South Korea that he was going to join the army, they were shocked. My father and mother are like, Kim, don't do that. What did you tell them? I just said that, Mom and Dad, like, I'm not applying the American military to die. I'm not applying for that. I'm applying to live, to survive. Kim is looking forward to becoming a U.S. citizen this summer and serving his new country. And Mavni is expected to help many others like him. For The World, I'm Nina Porzuki. For more stories and interviews on languages as they relate to both military and civilian life, go to theworld.org slash language. Armchair scientists rejoice. Today's GeoQuiz is all about getting up close and personal with some of the world's biggest carnivores without actually leaving the comfort or safety of your own home. These big meat eaters are residents of a national park in East Africa. The park covers more than 5,500 square miles. It was established in 1951, and you'll find grassland and savanna, but also river-fed forests. Tourism is allowed, but humans are not allowed to live permanently on park land. Scientists, though, are busy studying animal interactions in the park, and they're using more than 220 camera traps to help capture candid shots, especially of big predators. There's a wonderful sequence where a lion comes up and falls asleep in front of the camera, and then every so often we get a paw flicking or a tail flicking, and the camera takes another shot. Name the park and the country it's located in, and we'll tell you how you can help identify the wildlife there later in the show. Headlines are next. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Florida tomato growers have struggled under the North American Free Trade Agreement. Now they want the same kind of help that the auto industry got. I mean, we're not Detroit, we're Florida. And we don't want to be put out of business by the Mexicans or the Canadians. We want to still be in the business feeding the United States of America, period. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report. 
online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This weekend in Japan, the main opposition party, the conservative LDP, won in parliamentary elections. So former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe will likely get another chance to lead the nation. This marks a shift to the right for Japan, and surprisingly perhaps, a show of support for a pro-nuke party in a country devastated by the nuclear disaster at Fukushima a year and a half ago. The Democratic Party, or DPJ, powered down all but two of Japan's 50 remaining nuclear reactors. The newly elected Conservative Party has said it plans to get them back online over time. Steve Herman is Voice of America's Northeast Asia bureau chief based in Seoul, Korea. He says the vote came down more or less to one thing. Well, I think there are more concerns about the economy than anything else among Japanese voters, and they are uh, conscious to some degree that uh, Japan, which has uh, scant natural resources, is heavily reliant on nuclear power. So in some sense, uh, voters seem to have made a pragmatic choice. There were a number of uh, anti-nuclear candidates on the ballot, and some new parties sprung up with that platform, and they did not do very well. In Fukushima, where the disaster actually took place, I mean, four out of five districts went to the pro-nuclear conservative LDP. I mean, why there? Well, a lot of people in Fukushima have been dependent on the nuclear industry. The other thing you have to take into consideration is that Fukushima, despite its reputation for the uh, nuclear disaster, is a predominantly agriculture area. One of the uh, breadbaskets, or we should say rice baskets, of Japan. Mm. And there's always been uh, very strong support uh, between the agricultural cooperative in Japan, which is quite powerful, and the LDP. If it has its way, what would Japan's nuclear industry and economy look like? How many nuclear plants do they want to put back online? It appears that it's almost inevitable that the LDP, the conservatives, will reverse the DPJ's stance of phasing out nuclear power and that they will begin gradually to bring the nuclear power plants that are offline back online. I don't think it's going to be a flip of the switch. Things in Japan tend to uh, be done in, in a more subtle and extended manner, and I think we'll see um, statements coming out, and the LDP will test the waters on this and, and take it very gradually. Of course, uh, one indication of just which direction things are going to go into, you can look at the uh, stock market and the day after the election, Tokyo Electric Power Company, I think it was 33% that the stock price surged. Uh, I don't know if it it closed at exactly that, but uh, obviously uh, heavy bets were being placed that uh, TEPCO is going to be back uh, heavily in the uh, nuclear power generating business again. The victorious conservative uh, LDP party also has to contend uh, with uh, the controversial Senkaku Islands territorial dispute with China. How much did that play into the party's win? From what I have seen from voter surveys, probably much less than uh, many people in the international media have, have made out of it. Obviously, everybody knows where Shinzo Abe stands, and he by far was not uh, the most conservative candidate uh, in regards uh, to the island dispute uh, 
But we have to remember Shinzo Abe, who is obviously a nationalist, wants to revise the constitution, speaks a hard line towards China and South Korea, that he was prime minister before, and relations with Beijing were not all that bad. In fact, uh, uh, Shinzo Abe made his first trip when he was uh, prime minister previously to China, and and things seem to be on an even keel. This time around, um, Mr. Abe says his first trip will be to the United States, and uh, he really wants to get that um, alliance with Washington back on track. Of course, they need that to uh, send a strong message to China as well that the the United States is in its uh, corner as as far as any sort of territorial disputes with China. Steve Herman with VOA, who was in Tokyo this weekend covering the parliamentary elections there. Appreciate it, Steve. Thank you. Okay. My pleasure. Egyptians went to the polls this weekend, too, for the first round of voting on the country's new and controversial constitution. The referendum's second round is set for next Saturday. Despite all the recent protests against it, the constitution is widely expected to be approved. Supporters will hail that as a key step forward for the country, but many Egyptians say it won't fix what really ails the country, the economy. As the world's Matthew Bell reports from Cairo, things are getting worse for Egypt's poorest. Drive out of downtown Cairo, and before you get to the suburbs, you reach the City of the Dead. Egyptians just call it the Cemetery. It's an ancient, crumbling catacomb of tombs and mausoleum structures that goes on for miles. Another thing about the place? Lots of people live here. Welcome to Cairo. Voters from the Cairo Necropolis, as the area is also known, went to the polls on Saturday to say yes or no to a controversial draft constitution. Supporters of the text say it's good for Islam. But in this area, people are just as likely to talk about what the constitution might mean for the economy. 48-year-old Mossad Mohammed says he voted yes to the constitution for the sake of stability. Everyone needs to put bread on the table, he says. As he finishes his point, a lively debate breaks out among a crowd of women next to the entrance of the polling place. Most are covered from head to toe in black, a sign that they come from conservative Muslim families. A woman in a green headscarf who introduces herself as Huda Hamid is adamant. She forces her way through the crowd to say why she voted no to the Constitution. The only things on the rise are deaths and inflation, Hamid says. She lives near the city of the dead with her husband and their two daughters, 12 and 17. His pension is their only income. It's about $30 a month. With the cost of water, food, electricity and medicine, she asks, how can we get by? Still, Hamid went out to cast her vote, perhaps a sign, however small, that she is holding out some hope for positive change. Other poor Egyptians are not so hopeful. Not far from the polling station, amid the maze of tombs, I meet a family of seven that has lived in the cemetery for 25 years. Their family burial site is also their home. It provides shelter and there's an electric light hooked up. But this is a life of destitution, even by Egyptian standards. Salwa Mahmoud says that she was told to vote yes on the Constitution for the sake of Islamic Sharia law. But she says there was no point in voting. 
We are Muslims, she says. Who is President Mohamed Morsi to tell us about Islam? When we die, she asks with disdain, will we see no God but God or no God but Morsi? Mahmoud and her husband say they live a life with no dignity. They survive on charity. The Egyptian revolution, they say, has not been good for them. They never supported it. Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood promised to help the poor, Mahmoud says, but the president has not lived up to that promise, so she doesn't support them. It's no surprise the poorest Egyptians are disillusioned, says Ahmed al-Nagar of the Al-Aram Center for Political and Strategic Studies. The fact is, he says, things are getting worse for the poor. Well, the same uh, policies of Mubarak period is continuous till now under the military council and under uh, Dr. Mohamed Morsi. The same policies. Egypt spends a staggering 10% of its GDP on food and fuel subsidies. But Nagar says this spending fails to reach the people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. Around 40 million Egyptians, that's about half the population, lives on one or two dollars a day. Unemployment is rising. Inflation is a problem. And Nagar says this Egyptian government isn't addressing the problem. I think if this government do not take actions to help those people or to make them able to help themselves, I think there will be a big explosion in the coming months. And it's not just the poor who are at risk. The clock is ticking for the whole Egyptian economy. An emergency IMF loan was just delayed, and the nation's foreign reserves are being depleted. At the current rate, they will be completely gone in about three months' time. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Cairo. For more of Matthew's reporting from Egypt, including his coverage of the heated constitutional referendum campaign, come to theworld.org. President George H.W. Bush ceremonially signed the North American Free Trade Agreement 20 years ago today. It became law the following year. NAFTA allowed for the free flow of fruits and vegetables across the border, and over the years there have been winners and losers on both sides. Among the losers, Florida's fresh tomato growers. They say the free trade agreement is slowly killing them, and now they're fighting back. The world's Jason Margolis reports from Palmetto, Florida. Bob Spencer stands in a small office perched above the packing house Florida's company, West Coast Tomato. Thousands of Roma tomatoes roll by every minute on big leather belts. Spencer points out cameras that are taking photos of each tomato. That picture is then sent up to these computers, and it's making a determination of size and color of the tomato. Tomatoes drop into different shoots. And seconds later, streams of nearly identical green tomatoes plop into 25-pound cardboard boxes bound for the Northeast and Canada. They'll ripen along the way. On a typical day, they package about 750,000 pounds of tomatoes here, but they're running about half a million pounds below capacity. Spencer says the problems began shortly after NAFTA was signed some two decades ago. And what's happened is the acreage in Florida has dropped as the competition from Mexico has had a dampening impact on our prices. And uh, a lot of the people that I would go to conventions with 20 years ago are no longer here. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, fresh tomato production in Florida has fallen 41 percent since NAFTA went into effect. Meanwhile, tomato production in Mexico has gone the other way. Florida growers were concerned when NAFTA was signed and tariffs on imported tomatoes were dropped. 
But Bob Spencer says they knew NAFTA's passage was inevitable, so they lobbied for as much enforcement as they could get. That included a 1996 deal that set a minimum price for imported tomatoes. Little did we know that the enforcement we bargained for was really not going to be any enforcement at all. The end result was we had uh, Barney for our policeman. We didn't have Andy. For those of you under a certain age, that's a reference to the Andy Griffith show. Spencer's point, enforcement of imported tomatoes has been weak. So Spencer and other fresh tomato growers are asking the Department of Commerce to rip up the 1996 minimum price deal that would then free them up to seek duties on imported Mexican tomatoes. Florida growers accuse the Mexican growers of dumping tomatoes below cost to run them out of business. You know, one of the tenets of American trade law for the last 50 years has been you can ship into this country, you can ship in at costs below our costs but you can't ship in at cost below your cost of production. That's a difficult accusation to prove, though. And Mexican tomato farmer Martin Lay says they're not doing it. Lay is speaking on behalf of growers in his country. He says they're outselling Florida farmers because Mexican farmers have a better product and one that American consumers can get year-round. Mexico has brought a tomato that is ripened naturally. It's ripened in the plant. It's ripened while he's getting all the sugars and flavors, and that's why it's, it is a good-tasting tomato, naturally. Lay warns that if Florida growers get their way, consumers would be the biggest losers. He says we'd have fewer tomato varieties that cost more. And other American farmers could lose if Florida tomato farmers win. The Mexican government is threatening retaliatory tariffs if the Commerce Department sides with American tomato producers. Martin Lay says free trade and NAFTA have worked as advertised. The transformation of the Mexican tomato industry has been amazing. Now there is all kinds of cocktail tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes, multiple color tomatoes, uh, grape tomatoes, all kinds of stuff that, that have brought a lot of excitement into the store shelf. And this is not a simple case of Mexicans winning and Americans losing, says trade analyst Claude Barfield. Barfield is with the Washington think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. He says Mexican tomatoes sold in American grocery stores are helping employ a lot of Americans. We have a very large sector that is dependent on trade in terms of the support of cross-border trade. And it's, as I say, it's not just the good itself. It's not just a truck. But it's the person who has to handle the financing, the people who have to handle the communications that, that bring this back and forth as well as lawyers and people stacking produce. But Florida tomato grower Jim Granger asks, what about him? He says the federal government needs to stand behind American growers. I don't want to see a foreign country put us out of business. They help the uh, car manufacturers in Detroit for the same reason, or or comparable reasons. And, And we're just looking for the same treatment. I mean, we're not Detroit, we're Florida. We want to still be in the business feeding the United States of America, period. Granger adds for good measure, his tomatoes are better than the Mexican ones. I don't think they'll ever be better than ours in the state of Florida. Another Florida tomato producer I met said the few of them that are still remaining can handle two or three more bad seasons, then they'll all be gone. Then, he warns, we'll all be eating Mexican tomatoes, no matter which country's tomatoes we actually prefer. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Palmetto, Florida. This is PRI. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Imagine if you had not hundreds, but millions of holiday snapshots from your African safari to sort through. That's the task facing scientists who are studying animal behavior in the Serengeti National Park in Tanzania. Serengeti National Park and Tanzania are the answers to today's GeoQuiz. For more than 40 years, scientists with the Serengeti Lion Project have been documenting the lives of lions in the park. Of course, in the good old days, studying detailed animal interactions meant sending a graduate student out with a diary. But that's like trying to understand Britain by sitting in Trafalgar Square for an afternoon. You don't get a picture of everything that's going on. That's Chris Lintod of Oxford University. He's involved with a project called Snapshot Serengeti. Scientists have set up more than 200 camera traps in the park to capture pictures not just of lions, but of all the wildlife. But here's the thing. Those 200 cameras capture a lot of photos. The cameras allow us to carpet the whole place uh, to get a real understanding of what's happening, but only if we can sort through the the three million or so holiday snaps that we've got. And so on the Snapshot Serengeti website, you can look at the pictures and with just a few clicks, help identify the animals, number them, and describe what they're doing in the picture. Lintot says you never know what you're going to see. The cameras capture pretty much everything on the Serengeti. Lintot says one sequence of photos of a hyena recently caught his eye. You get three images. The first one, the hyena's looking straight down the lens, uh, like a a superstar out on a Friday night. On the second one, the hyena's in the background skulking, and the third shot is the inside of the hyena's mouth uh, as it attacks the camera. And that's one of the problems, actually. The animals take a strong interest in the camera, uh, and they don't survive all that long. That would be the cameras, not the animals. The cameras can last about two months before needing maintenance and new batteries. Of course, they're likely to be, you know, torn down by elephants or infested by ants before then, but it's all worth it. The photos, Lintot says, will help scientists get a clearer picture of how animals, especially big predators like lions, interact with other big predators in the park. Do they compete for food? Do they attack each other? Do they ignore each other and go about their, their lives anyway? And, and so that's one of the things that we think we can understand by doing this sort of experiment. Lintot says experts are also hoping to get a better sense of just how much park land big carnivores need to survive and thrive. The Snapshot Serengeti project, by the way, has a good pedigree. Lintot's group also runs two other popular citizen science projects. One gives you the chance to mine old Navy ships' logs for climate data. The other allows you to help classify galaxies. If you want to find the link to Snapshot Serengeti, just come along to theworld.org. Music from the West African nation of Gambia via the UK closes our show today. The group is Juju. Here's a sample of the track, Waida Nedi. Joining me now from the Real World Studios in Box, England, is Justin Adams. So this is a third album by uh, the group Juju. Uh, you're one half of it, uh, the other half, Jilde Kamara. Uh, you've hit upon this chemistry that's working, it's evolving. Describe that chemistry for us. Well, I'm effectively a rock and roll guitarist, and Jilde is a griot, which means he's a traditional musician from West Africa who's been playing his instrument, which is called a riti, 
which is a one-string violin. He's been playing it since he was five years old. And you might think, OK, how come a rock and roll guitarist and a traditional player of a West African strange instrument uh, would fit together? The link is the blues, because uh, the blues music, or the, the African side of blues music, came from West Africa, from exactly the sort of area that Julde comes from. And so his music has got some of the original scales and rhythms and most importantly the kind of the spiritual feeling that you find in blues music and early rock and roll music that's the kind of link which is the reason why we can play together so you have that kind of spiritual link uh, a- a- as you say but in terms of the craft of making music making music that is the blues what have you learned from Jill Day that has transformed your own music um i think what's really interesting about the way we work together to me is that there's very little talking but what we do it really is like a conversation but it's a musical conversation and so Julde will play a little musical figure or it might be that I'll start with a musical figure and then we just groove off each other just make doing variations and what happens when we play concerts is that a song which we might have originally played in rehearsal it was four minutes long but when we've got a dancing audience then the music starts to take on another shape that's why the album's called In Trance track called Nightwalk from the new album by Juju uh, called In Trance. Justin, before I let you go, I, I have to ask you about Mali. I know uh, Jilde Kamara is from uh, Gambia. He's not from Mali, but you're the founder of Mali's now well-known festival in the desert, one of the founders. Uh, last I heard, there were questions and concerns about the festival taking place uh, in early 2013. What is the status right now, and wh- what conversations are you having with musicians from Mali? Because there's a huge crisis there. Well, it's a complete disaster. It, there's a, col- a kind of whole series of, of political disasters and disturbances that are going on. But suffice to say, the bad guys in every direction seem to have taken the upper hand. And one of the results of this is that the lives of musicians is almost impossible. The Festival of the Desert, as it was, is, is completely off at the moment. But um, the Tuareg organisers are trying to organise a festival of the desert in exile in order to show the continuing commitment of uh, musicians that uh, the culture which represents tolerance and unity continues to, to flourish. Justin Adams, UK guitarist and co-founder of Molly's Festival in the Desert, his group Juju has released the new album In Trance. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. Sahara, <laughs> Sahara, 
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.